The title of our message today is Loving One Another with Your Conscience. Say that with me. Loving One Another with Your Conscience. Amen. So last November, you know I broke my shoulder and uh, Sarah took me to the ER and the Check-in person greeted me with, what's your name? Randall Boltinghouse, what's your birthday? 925-61, what's the problem? I think I broke my shoulder. Okay, can you sit down and we'll put you in touch with the assessment nurse. And then I saw the assessment nurse, what's your name? Randall Boltinghouse, what's your birthday? 925-61, you know, they have never sent me a birthday card, <laughs> right? I, I, Sarah says it's called a bill, sweetheart, that's what it is, but... I wasn't in the ER for very long before I realized I was in this process called triage. Triage is from the French, trier. It means to sort. Triage is the process of sorting out the more severe cases from the lesser. A broken shoulder is painful, but it's not a heart attack. And if there's a staff shortage or a surge in ER cases, medical triage prioritizes treatment in order to save lives. Sometimes you have to practice triage with your children, parental triage. You know, there's one of you and two or more of your children, and you need to prioritize according to what's important or urgent. Then there's work. Your boss has six projects that he or she wants you to take care of, and you're trying to juggle them all, and the more urgent projects need to get your attention. That's triage. Today, I want to talk about theological or doctrinal triage. Doctrinal triage is what I do when I rank or prioritize biblical teachings of Christianity. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says that what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. What's Paul doing? He's practicing triage, doctrinal triage. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, don't quarrel over opinions. And in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, Jesus spoke about the weightier matters of the law. What's he doing? He's practicing doctrinal triage. Doctrinal triage. It, it may come as maybe a surprise to know, or but once you think about it, you'll see that, okay, that makes sense. Not all doctrines weigh the same. So that's what's behind doctrinal triage. Now, I want to propose uh, three categories or tiers of doctrinal triage. And the first being, the Apostle Paul stated it, matters of first importance. Matters of first importance. That means that there are biblical truths which if added to or subtracted from, you don't have Christianity. You may have something else, but you don't have Christianity. So these are essential doctrines of the faith. And Paul just talked about 
one of them in 1 Corinthians 15. The bodily resurrection of Christ. Not the mystical or kind of spiritual, but the bodily in space-time resurrection of Christ. There's the Trinitarian view of God. That is, God exists as one being in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Islam does not teach that. Neither does Buddhism or Hinduism. This is unique to Christianity, the Trinitarian view of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. That, that God rescues us, redeems us, and adopts us by grace through faith in Christ. Not because of your work, not because of any amounts of money that you give or your attendance or not any religious duty that you do to merit salvation, but by grace through faith, trusting in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that the Bible is not man's word from below, but God's word from above. That it is always true and never false. You know, if you deny these statements that I've just made, these truth statements, it's, in my view, rather difficult to call yourself a Christian in any meaningful sense of the term. Matters of first importance. But then there are matters of second importance. And these are interpretations about certain teachings of Scripture, such as the second coming of Christ. Uh, in the book of Revelation, how do you interpret the, the phrase 1,000 years? Uh, or how do you understand the relationship between divine sovereignty and human will? How should a local church be governed? What's the role of men and women in marriage or ministry? What about sign gifts? Uh, Christians may differ on these, but for the sake of congregational or operational unity, we come to an agreement about how to serve together for the sake of the gospel. Matters of second importance. Finally, there are matters of third importance. And these are, the, these are issues that the Bible neither approves nor prohibits. Is it okay to consume alcohol? Can I, can I smoke a cigar? Can I work on Sunday? Is it okay to get a tattoo? What about trick-or-treating? What about Santa Claus? What about homeschool versus public school versus private school versus Christian private school? You know, what's the calling on well, Or boarding school. What about movies? What about playing cards? What about joining a political party? What should I do? What does my conscience say? See, these are matters of third importance. Now, here's the deal. And if you want a, an excellent reference, uh, and this book has been my friend in the study this week, Gavin Ortland has written a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On. And here's what he said. 
We embrace matters of first importance with courage and conviction. We embrace matters of second importance with wisdom and balance. And we embrace matters of third importance with humility and restraint. Hmm. That's a good word. Now, it's this third tier that I want us to think about today. So my entire goal today is to help us live in unity with the tensions of third tier teachings. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're in a series of messages, if you're new here, either in person or online. And we are studying through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's a theme united in Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is the first of three chapters uh, in a section of this letter. It constitutes a case study where believers who were united in the non-negotiable essentials of Christianity, these believers face the challenge of working through differences in matters of third importance. And in this chapter, we'll see that it had to do with whether or not it was appropriate to consume an entree with meat that had been associated with pagan temples. Uh, so this chapter deals with what's called the idol meat controversy. Now, I doubt if any of us here today had to struggle with that this past week. Whether or not you should have idol meat for supper. That said, there are some principles here concerning this question. How does God want us to protect unity when we differ over matters of conscience? That's the question here. So what I want to do is I just want to read the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll read the whole chapter. Then I want to, I want to give you kind of a history lesson, a background lesson uh, about the text. And then I want us to consider the big idea, the lesson from the text. So I'm going to read the text, talk about the history of the text, and then consider the lesson from the text. Uh, before I read, let me just tell you, this is so, so relevant. This passage is, is uh, worth preaching with clarity and emphasis. Given today's conflation of Christian freedom with American freedom. Christian rights and American rights. We often just conflate the two. We often just mix the two together. In American culture, freedom means freedom of speech, freedom of fear, freedom of want, freedom of worship. Christian freedom is so much more. And that's what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The Apostle Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. So that quote in verse 1 is he's quoting what they said. All right? We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something... 
He does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. Then, you see, you see the quote there in the passage? So Paul is quoting them. They have asked Paul for a ruling on this issue, and Paul is responding in a reply, and he's using their words. We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers... And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word. It feels like we just kind of walked into a conversation, right? Uh, So let me give some background here. Paul started the church at Corinth in around the year A.D. 50. And he started it with a Christian couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And they met at the home of uh, Titius Justus, who was uh, Roman. He wasn't uh, of a Hebrew ethnicity as Paul was. And so for the next 18 months, the church grew. Romans chapter 16 verse 23 says that a, another believer named Gaius hosted a house church as well. So the church is growing, and they didn't have 10 acres and a facility like ours, and they didn't have an online uh, presence. They, they had house churches. And so when one house church got crowded, they had to ask another believer to host the house church for the church that was growing. And so Paul is going from home to home. He's preaching and teaching. He's training spiritual leaders and he's equipping the church. And the church was composed with people from a variety of ethnic and educational and socioeconomic spaces. Some were citizens, some were slaves, some were single, some were married. Christ had called them all and they worshiped together for no other reason than their common love for Jesus Christ. Now, Paul left after about a year and a half. Years later, he gets wind of some serious divisions in the church. The church is only four or five years old. 
when Paul hears about these struggles. And these struggles had to do with uh, spiritual gifts. We've considered some of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and there were struggles about sexual propriety. And there were lawsuits uh, between believers in the congregation. Uh, there was an issue about order in worship. And, and here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there is an issue which is prefaced by the phrase, now concerning. Now concerning. When you see that phrase throughout 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing a particular question that they ask. Now concerning idol meat. Um, and, and it went something like this. One night, you're with a friend and some other friends, and you're all walking the streets of Corinth. And one of your friends says, hey, let's go out to eat. There's a special going on at the Temple of Apollo. Uh, they had restaurants in pagan temples back then. Very interesting. Uh, and at the Temple of Apollo, they had just had a festival whereby they sacrificed animals commemorating this pagan deity. And you and your friends are hungry for some meat. You want some meat. Now, meat was a delicacy back then. It wasn't served year-round. And when they sacrificed the animals for these particular festivals, suddenly the market was flooded with meat. And the temple couldn't sell all of the meat in the restaurants that were adjacent to the deity. And so what was left went out into the public, to the marketplace. So your group is at this pagan temple. Dinner is served. There's uh, an open seat around the table. And it's for the God. And actually, just as a meal would be served before you, uh, there would be a meal that would be served before the God, even though the seat was empty. You just used your imagination. Someone said a little pagan invocation. Everybody nods, let's eat. And you're enjoying it. It's meat. It's grilled, juicy, flavorful. You don't believe that pagan gibberish anyway. You like meat. And amen. And you're there for your friends. And it's an opportunity to network for business contacts. And because you, you got to hustle to advance in your career. And there was a, a kind of patronage and courting for commerce sake. And you just had to do that if you wanted to get ahead in the first century. Oh, and also, there were evangelistic reasons for being there. Jesus talked about being fishers of men. Well, you got to go where the fish are. An evening at the temple restaurant is an opportunity to invite someone to church services. Now, I mean, these were literally legitimate reasons. At the table, though, is a friend who attends the house church with you. In fact, that friend you met at that temple dining area. And that friend saw your life and got curious about 
Jesus and then started learning about Jesus and then was recently baptized and now that friend is with you and you're enjoying the meal. It's meat. And you're with other friends and you happen to glance over to your friend and you happen to notice that he's just really not feeling that comfortable. He's kind of feeling troubled. He's kind of feeling conflicted. He's feeling guilty. Why? Because your friend used to frequent that very temple as a pagan. And your friend used to offer sacrifices. And your friend used to participate in temple rituals, which in some cases included prostitution. And now your friend visits that temple not as a pagan, but as a Christian. And he smells the temple incense and inhales the aroma of meat. And he sees the exotic temple colors and its triggering memories. Old memories. Memories that he would rather forget. That's what the experience is like for your friend. To you, it's meat. A calorie is a calorie. But to this young Christian, it's a haunted past. Church family, this is the scenario in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And it is threatening to divide the church. So they needed direction from Paul. How do we help someone who is bothered by idol meat? How, how do we help them? Paul, how, how do we help them? How do we help them get over it? How do we bring them up to our level? Remember, this isn't a matter of first importance. It's a matter of third importance. It's a matter of conscience. Paul, you know, how can we fix this person? Well, that's where verse 1 begins with, Now concerning food offered to idols. Paul says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. In other words, there, there's a group in the church that knows that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. And, and those that don't, well, well, we just, you know, we just need to throw those that don't into the deep end of the pool and teach them how to swim. And, and at the very outset, the Apostle Paul questions that assumption. Paul says, you are presuming that the way to resolve this problem is to make the person who is struggling just like you. You're presuming that your level of knowledge justifies you. But the fact is, your level of knowledge is not helping your brother or sister who is struggling with this issue. What's happening is that your knowledge is breeding arrogance. And that's why Paul says in verse 1, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Furthermore, Paul says, you may say that you know God, but the important question is this, does God know you? And the answer is yes, if you show love. You can have all of the seminary degrees and all the theological knowledge possible, but if you don't have love, love, not knowledge, is evidence of being known by God. Data retention is not the mark of a Christian. Love is. Now, let's be clear. The apostle is not arguing against knowledge. He's not arguing uh, that it's not important to have doctrinal awareness. He's not, that's not what he's saying. He's saying loveless knowledge causes conceit. 
Let me ask you a question. When you are in a disagreement with your spouse or your brother or sister in Christ, how how do you view that disagreement? Do you see it as a battle of messages or do you see it as a learning conversation? In a battle of messages, the goal is to marshal your arguments, lay siege to your competitor, and fight over who's right. In a battle of messages, the the goal is to score enough points to silence your opponent so as to win. You're right, they're wrong. Let's move on. In a learning conversation, (laughs) you're assuming, though, that there are some important things that you may not know. In a learning conversation, you're, you're as interested in the relationship as you are in the issue. In a learning conversation, more than trying to score points, you're trying to grow in love. So, so conflict isn't a pathway to victory. It's a passage to intimacy and closeness. So Paul questions their assumption at the outset. And in verses 4 through 6, and I want you to see how brilliant Paul is as he diplomatically navigates between those with knowledge and uh, those with what he later calls a weak conscience. Paul says in verses 4 through 6 that he actually agrees with those who think that a calorie is a calorie. Paul says, I know. You know, I get it. Uh, As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Of course, I get it. You're right. Meat is good. Idols are non-existent. And then he says in verse 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That is a first-order creedal statement right there in verse 6. And Paul doesn't budge there. That is a New Testament version of the Shema. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul takes that and Christianizes it. In fact, Paul says, look, verse 6 is what allows some of the Corinthians to have the assurance of eating idol meat. However, verse 7 says that not every brother or sister in Christ has this this assurance of knowledge. Verse 7. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as if really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul says, look, food is just food. But not not all have a settled self-awareness and assurance of their identity in Christ and their place in his church. And Paul calls this a, a weakened conscience. Now, Americans don't like the word weak. We say, well, I don't want to be like that person. Paul's not saying that the person with a weak conscience is defective, has a defect in their personhood. Paul is saying that they happen to have a weak conscience in that particular issue. All right? Paul says when they see you consuming food that's associated with a past they'd rather forget, there's a trigger that sets them on a course to deep spiritual woundedness 
which if left unaddressed might result in unthinkable spiritual danger. And I don't know if you're thinking this at this point, but I know when I read that, I was thinking, well, I just won't tell them that I go to the temple. And, you know, what they don't know won't hurt them. And Paul says, Randy, let's go deeper than that. Let's go deeper than that. Because, you see, this is no anonymous, theoretical church member. This is your brother. This is your sister whom you interact with. You know, it's not like you just want to have one life over here. That isn't that, that's kind of our cultural thing, isn't it, right? We're going to have this life over here, and then I'm going to have this life over here. And Paul is saying, you have one life, one God, one Father, one Lord. That's integrity, int- integer, one, one. And this is your brother and your sister. And then Paul says, for whom Christ died... So you're hurting the very person who matters to Jesus, for whom Jesus hung on the cross. So you just went from it's just a calorie to you sinned against Christ. What Paul is saying is that loveless knowledge against a sibling in Christ is sin against Christ. Verse 13 says, I... Paul says, I don't, I don't want that. You know, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, the word stumble does not mean annoy. So we're not talking about letting someone hold all of us hostage. Okay? We're not talking about just Someone who is annoyed. We're not talking about even someone who just gets angry. We're talking about someone who as a result of me using my freedom brings them irreparable damage. I mean, to the point where they're going to walk away from the only hope of heaven. Paul says, are you willing to do that? I mean, is that your version of freedom? So how do I navigate a relationship with my brother or sister in Christ when our consciences differ over matter of opinion? Well, as I said earlier, I don't know of any of us who struggle about whether or not they should be eating steak in the Temple of Apollo. What might that equivalent be today? (laughs) Oh, let me count the ways. I've got 31 here. All right. I'm going to talk fast. Watching mixed martial arts for entertainment. How to treat Sundays. Listening to secular music. Dressing modestly, a fair trade coffee, a various economic theories, global warming, watching particular movies or TV shows, playing video games, reading Harry Potter, wearing makeup, following the schedule in growing kids God's way, homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics, 
Uh, Public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool. Eating fast food that is unhealthy. A church with multiple services and multiple sites. Christian hip-hop. Body piercings going into debt. Dating versus courtship. When married couples should start trying to have children. How many children married couples should have. Uh, Practicing daily family devotions or personal devotions. Body weight mass. Santa Claus. Trick-or-treating. Political affiliations and ballot box preferences. Tattoos. Uh, Married couples and contraceptives. Vaccination or not. Reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. That's 31. There's more. You could probably think of some. Some of these may have like, if it pricked you a little bit, then you're living in the first century here. Next week, I'm going to spend the entire week talking about this word, conscience. It's a very important word that Paul uses in this context and Come back. But for now, here's the big idea. In matters of opinion, in matters of conscience, 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul is urging us, Christian freedom, foregoing your rights is more important than knowing your rights. Foregoing your rights is more important than knowing your rights. Now, notice I said in third order, matters of opinion. Notice I didn't say matters of first importance. When it comes to the essentials of our faith, we are to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apostles declared in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation In no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men and women by which we must be saved. Regarding the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be pitied. So in matters of first importance, we don't budge. And in matters of first importance, we conduct ourselves winsomely stately, with courtesy. And if that's true in matters of first importance, how much more so in matters of opinion? You know that our culture exalts personal freedom. But here is the deal, and you know this, church family, the exercise of personal freedom is never simply personal. I mean, people would love to believe that their actions do not affect those around them or the society as a whole, but that's naive. Culture is the result of countless individuals exercising their personal rights for good or ill. And no one exercises his or her rights in a bubble. He or she is always practicing before a community. And Paul says, please Remember that you are practicing what you know in community. And, and so you have a choice. You can, are you going to do it in a way that it leads to maturity or a way that leads to immaturity? Please don't exercise your freedom in a way that would wound your brother or sister in Christ. That's reasonable, isn't it? And then there's a powerful word that tells us 
how we are to use our freedom in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's a, it's a small word, but it is powerful. It's easy to overlook when we read it. It's right smack dab in the middle of chapter 8. Look at verse 6. There is one God from whom all things exist, and then Paul says, and for whom we exist. For, for. For whom we exist. We exist for God. We don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist for our opinions. We don't exist for our rights. Freedom is not freedom from or freedom of. It's freedom for. It's for him. And verse 6 situates Jesus with the Father. Co-equal. Through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We exist through Jesus for the Father. Jesus is identified with the Father as if to say, look to him. Imitate him. Follow him. Speak like him. Live like him. He died for your brother. He died for your sister. And not just for your brother or sister. He died for his messianic people. The king knew his rights. And yet he chose to forego his rights so that we could belong to him. And so we are only truly free to the extent that we set aside our freedoms from and freedoms of and instead embrace freedom for him for the sake of others. So it's not a question of what we can get away with. It's a question of how we can best use our liberties to the glory of God and in the service of others. Beloved, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 makes me stand toe-to-toe with these questions. Randy, how hard do you think about other people? How hard do you think about loving your fellow Christians? And how hard do you think about the lost? Our identity is not to be bound up in self-expression. It is to be bound up in the ultimate self-expression of the God who is characterized by self-giving love. The son surrendered voluntarily. He wanted to. He desires us. There was a voluntary self-renunciation and self-abasement. The most entitled person in the universe surrendered his rights for us. And I'll tell you how this section ends. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, You see it? You see it? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Wouldn't it be something? Here's the vision. That the people in our community would spend time with us that they would have supper with us. 
that we would, conversation with us. And then as a result of that experience, they would walk away. And they would say, you know, being with, being with Bob, being with Susan, being with the Windsor Road family, that's, that's the closest I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Well, that's our vision, church family. That's our calling. That, church family, is love. Love.